Hello, hello. This is the first episode of Check the Score. I am your host, Charles Steinberg, and I am psyched. Mostly because film and television composer Emil Masseri is my first guest, but also because on this show, I will be sharing conversations with great composers like Emil about my favorite art form, scoring the moving picture. Over the past couple of years, I've been talking with some of my favorite composers for my Keeping Score column with Under the Radar magazine. That's when I first met a shining new star of film composition, Emil Mosseri. I'm thrilled to have Emil back as my first guest on Check the Score. This is Emil's music that's bringing us in here, and it's the main theme from his most recent score to the fabulous new Miranda July film, Cajillionaire, which actually had a theatrical release at the end of September and was just released to VOD. Mosseri had an unmistakable presence when he stepped onto the scene and blew everyone away with his first feature score for The Last Black Man in San Francisco. When I first took notice of his lush, emotive style, it was more like a band you discover in a small, dark venue one night and just know you've happened upon something. Since The Last Black Man in San Francisco, Mosseri has gone on to provide the music for the second season of the Amazon series Homecoming, where he somehow strikes a balance between Bernard Herrmann and Radiohead, and he has also scored two of the films that received some of the biggest buzz at the Sundance Film Festival this past year. Cajillionaire was one of them, and I had the great delight to talk with Emil about his experience on July's wonderfully strange new film when I caught up with him again just recently. Okay. I'm excited, man. We're making history. Check the score, baby. <laughs> That's right. Um, I'm pretty excited about this. Hell yeah. All right, let's do it. Emil, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about your career as a film composer and a musician in rock bands as well. And I'm excited to have you as my first guest. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It was interesting. I was, I was kind of readying myself today and trying to get in a frame of mind for this talk. And and I was realizing there's so many intense distractions around us in the world right now. Um, you can't you can't block them out. They're always there. You know, the country is literally on fire. People are losing their homes and getting shot in their homes. Yeah. And meanwhile, I'm over here thinking about film music. So I was feeling a little. Con- I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It's hard. It's hard to unplug, and it's hard to get a, a clear head and get into that creative space or sometimes it can all feel trivial in comparison and, and in ways it is, but it's also, you know, if you can be engaged and then unplug and use different parts of your, your heart and soul, you know, that's, that's a good place to live, you know? Yeah. I mean, we need a release, don't we? No matter what's going on. Yeah. Uh, to kind of, to kind of mitigate the stress of this period in our lives. And I was wondering how you personally, you deal with that when you have deadlines and you have projects to work on. And also we're constantly being reminded that everything seems to be going to shit in some way. Yeah. Has that been a challenge for you? Yeah, it definitely is a challenge. And, you know, it's it's tricky to talk about because... The world just hasn't been going to shit in the last few months. It's, you know, it's obviously these problems have been there all along. Very true. Now it's just sort of risen to the surface and it's harder to ignore. I do find as far as like, as far as how it affects your work, you know, it seems that when you have a deadline, it's easier um, because you have no choice. It's like sink or swim. What I find to be really hard, and I think a lot of other artists that I've talked to um, during this time, I've also said is that it's it's hard when you're creating your own deadlines and you want to make your own thing. I found it hard to like work on my record, you know, at this time during quarantine, during the pandemic, during and everything that's going on. It feels like uh, like like you mentioned earlier, like a bit trivial or or silly to you know. Is there a demand for this right now? Is this actually important? It's really hard to like tune out the the doom and gloom and justify actually working on your your art 
which is ironic too, because this pandemic is also sort of a time that a lot of creative people that have been busy have been dreaming about, like not, not within these horrible circumstances, but just as just a time where you don't have a, a deadline or don't have a mountain of work to finish or in, in film and TV, you know, and I, I can focus on my, my record, but it's proved a bit challenging. But, you know, I think you just, I think self-compassion is a big part of it that, that people need to exercise and, you know, that I've heard people say and say, just, you know, I give that advice to other people. So why not give that advice to myself to just, oh, go easy on yourself. You know, you don't have to Mm -hmm. be completely productive all the time. You can, you know, slow and steady wins the race kind of thing. Right. I like what you're saying about self-compassion. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be present and be dutiful and responsible citizens. And at the same time, you know, we have to have those moments where we can release and, and lose ourselves in the imaginary and, and have moments of laughter and have moments of entertainment. I mean, there, there needs to be that balance. And I guess it's about trying to find that balance. Each person has to try to find that for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I remember my, my dad told me that his father, my grandfather, owned a movie theater during the Depression, and there were loads of people going to the movies, even though they were out of work and desperate, because of that very reason. Yeah, in a way, in a way, you do have. I've heard that said about you know this time we're living in now. In a way, you do have a captive audience, you know. Yeah. Um, because people are hungry for it. People are hungry for escapism, or they're hungry for. To lose themselves or hungry to, for meaningful art or think something to make them feel something other than yeah I think it's it's a necessary it's like replenishing your yourself it's like you need to you need those nutrients you need other things for your soul and for your brain mm-hmm. other than reading stuff that that makes you outraged you know that's important too but yeah I think I do agree you need both it does, it makes sense you know that you would need both well moving on to your work. I feel very fortunate to have met you right at the beginning of kind of your ascent uh, when we spoke about uh, your score for The Last Black Man in San Francisco. That was kind of your breakout score, first feature score. Yeah, it was fun talking to you about that one. You know, I felt like we didn't feel the hours. on. Yeah, I remember you saying at the end of it, like, oh, it didn't even feel like two hours. Yeah, <laughs> we just yeah. Got, we got involved and... It was really rewarding to hear you talk about your work in such an open way. So since, since then, you've been involved in some amazing and really fascinating projects for film and TV, and I've been able to follow you with, with glee, I should say. I kind of caught you right at the beginning, and then I started to notice how many interesting projects you were getting involved in. I gather you're a humble, humble guy. Oh, thanks. And well disguised, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very curious to know how you feel, uh, or if if you really register the the buzz surrounding you. Um, since the last Black Man in San Francisco, you've gotten to work on season two of Homecoming uh, with Janelle Monae starring, and you had two films in Sundance this year: Kajillionaire, Miranda July's new film, and Minari as well. Do you pick up on? All the talk that you're kind of the new kid in town with with the cool new threads. Oh, man, I like that idea. No, I I I, I sometimes I, I feel very fortunate to be able to be working with, um, get sort of getting plugged into this thing where I get to work with great artists and great directors. And but yeah, I, I feel like uh, I don't know. There's a lot of new cool kids in town, and <laughs> I just feel like it'd be among them if that you know. But uh. I think the biggest thing is just, you know, I I felt like I did these three movies right in a row, uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco, uh, Kajillionaire and Minari, all for Plan B, the production company. And they're all three of them incredibly special films. And I feel like I got spoiled in that sense. And it's not every day that a film like that comes along, like any of these three. They're completely different and special in different ways, but um, I'm learning that now, that like the main thing is being able to connect with another human being that you admire and, and lend whatever tricks I have up my sleeve or whatever 
whatever my thing is to their vision. That's like the most rewarding part. Right. It's the back and forth and the mutual respect between the artists. Yeah, that's the best stuff. That's the best stuff. Well, you mentioned each of these projects has uh, been distinctly different in in genre and tone and and in the music needed to fit them specifically. Uh, is the beginning of a composing career a bit like covering all the bases one by one in terms of that and trying to see how many different things you could try on and see what you're good at? I think so. I mean, I think that that, that actually happens in the within each project, within each film, you know? Mm-hmm. You're trying on different things and seeing what actually what works. It's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of like, uh, f- you know, you can fall on your face. I think it's uh, it's really a testament to the directors that that have like if there's bold music in a film, it's just as much the cojones of the director than the cojones of the composer because it's their choice. They're driving it. They're approving it. Ultimately, at the end of the day, and they're yeah they're directing it. They're directing what direction you go and. And what risks you take, you know. So I've been lucky to work with directors that have given me freedom, but also have a strong vision and, you know, the the avocados to to go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was just even thinking about Homecoming Season 2 before we get into Kajillionaire. Was that the first time, I guess that must have been the first time you scored a mystery thriller of that nature with suspenseful music and that specific pacing and meter to it? Yeah, yeah, it certainly was. You know, I'd done some suspenseful music for for a show called Random Acts of Flyness for Terrence Nance. And yeah, this was the first time actually living in that space, like writing a bunch of anxiety-inducing, dark thriller music. And yeah, with Homecoming, for me, because I don't listen to a lot of music like that, it was fun to, to live in that space. And it was a blast. I met you through your film music, but and at the time I really wasn't aware of your band background because somehow I had missed out on the dig during its run in New York. Oh yeah, I don't know how that happened. Um, it happens, but I'm, happens to, it happens to the best of them. That's right. Can't catch everything, but yeah, yeah. But now that I've listened to that and also your new music with that band as Human Love, it's it's been really exciting for me to learn about you as a member of this band. Do you feel like you need both? Uh, How do the two crafts complement one another and somehow balance uh, each other out for you? I'd like to do both and I think you know, I love a lot of artists that do both, but I, there's a lot of artists that just, obviously there's a lot of artists that don't score films that I love and a lot of uh, composers that, that don't play in bands that I love as well. You know, I think I think at the end of the day, you're creating stuff and you're, you're trying to take what you've absorbed throughout your life and, and put it into whatever you're doing, whatever the medium is, if it's film or an album or playing a show, you know, you want to have some of yourself show up in it. And I think, you know, that's what's cool about when directors choose composers that play in bands. And if they're choosing you for what you do, if they love something that you've done, then then you get to see some of yourself in it, you know. And it's a natural thing. You don't have to squeeze it in. It's, it's just kind of like organically sh- shines through, you know, in your work. That's the goal. Well, we expressed kind of a mutual appreciation of some of these composers who started off in started off in bands sure yeah um danny elfman i heard you say was one of one of your first first loves your your first loves in film music first crush yeah and we also talked about trent reznor and hans zimmer and all these guys that came from bands um 
How much do you think contemporary alternative music has influenced your, your film music style? That's a good question. I don't know. I feel like it depends on the project. I think it might be more evident in uh, like a score like Kajillionaires than Last Black Man. Although Last Black Man, you know, if we're using an orchestral instrumentation to score a film, it doesn't mean that the melodies are, are necessarily classical or fit squarely in any genre. You know, I think that, you know, those are just the tools or the colors you're using to paint the score. But like, you know, I like to think that the music I listen to and the music I play in my band, you know, pieces of that will, will find its way into that score just dressed up in different instruments, you know, and horns and woodwinds and, and strings. And... But, you know, with Kajillionaire, I felt like it got to live in that space more, you know, as far as it you know, being more modern. And I felt like sort of music that I've been writing, kind of music that I've been writing my whole life, found a home in that film in a, in a way that was really special to me. Yeah, I'm so curious to know what it was like to work on a film with a director and an artist like Miranda July, who has a style all her own. I learned more about her in this process, and I guess I didn't realize the extent to which there are such fanboys of hers. Yeah, and and girls and everybody, yeah. She's like a religion to people, you know? Well, this is her third feature, following a wonderfully unique debut, Me and You and Everyone We Know, which was recently added to the Criterion Collection, and then the future back in 2011. So she's taken her time between films, and now she comes with Kajillionaire, which is a a very unusual and surprisingly compelling movie about a kind of misfit family of petty con artists in LA, on the surface anyway. And then it goes deeper than that. But what was your relationship with Miranda like in the creative process? How much communication did you have with her? Like all the directors you work with so far, she seems to have a special connection to the music in her films. So I was wondering how closely you work with her. Oh yeah, I know. We we it was incredibly close because we had a limited amount of time. We had you know just five or six weeks to do the score. It's not a lot of time to score a whole film. So she was here in the studio, and uh, we worked very hard, very fast to meet that deadline. So it was unlike any other experience I had because it was I was working in real time. I wasn't bouncing files and 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 sending you know, WAV files or movie files to her in an email and then waiting to get notes in an email and address those notes. It was, there wasn't any time for that. So she was in here every day and we were working in real time, which was, which was at first terrifying and, uh, <laughs> and, and exciting. And then it got, you know, slightly, it, it got less terrifying, but um, never stopped being exciting. I noticed in listening to the score a few times and also when I was fortunate enough to see the film, which I love and has already made a mark on me, I thought of it as kind of like a, a merging of classic Hollywood and even maybe some of this music that you would have heard in silent films going that far back and connecting with this kind of contemporary updated treatment from you. And I was wondering if you, you saw it that way as well. Yeah, you know, this is one of my first times talking about the score, so it's hard to, you know, all these things you don't necessarily set out to do in this calculated way. You kind of try things out and some things work, and, and then you figure out later how to talk about it. Like, oh, this is why it works. You know, like with Last Black Man, 
we never talked about the word fairy tale going into it, but you know, later on, that's how it kind of read, and then we start talking about it, and it makes sense. Well, with Kajillionaire, you know, I think it's yeah, I think like what you're saying, old silent films and old classic Hollywood. You know, she made a film that was very that you know is is sort of an LA movie in a way that we've never seen before, at least I've never seen before. Um, and she is this incredible artist that's fearlessly and unapologetically romantic and you know that was an exciting thing to try to join her there in that world and to to live there with her and and make music that 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 rose to that level of of romance and i think that that old hollywood thing i think there's something there you know i would think about those elements of this score being more influenced by italian composers and but it's all kind of the same thing. It's all old Hollywood and it's all, you know, that 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 side of it, which kind of is sits at the heart of it, I think, musically. Well, the thing I notice about uh, Miranda is that in her films, there's a sort of dialect and a way of character relationship that seems very particular to the world she has created. And all the characters communicate in such a way that they're kind of aligned with this alternate reality uh, born from her, you know, special view of humanity. I think about other directors uh, in that way, like Jared Hess and Todd Solins and Jim Jarmusch, to name a few. Mm-hmm. Were you a little intimidated by being invited by such kind of an unorthodox artist to color their world of weirdness, so to speak? Well, yeah, it was it was intimidating to get this job for sure, because you want to rise to it, and I wanted to make her happy. But the more intimidating, the more rewarding it is if it's working. You know, you say like an artist like Miranda, but really there isn't, there's no such thing. So, you you know, she's a very singular artist. So I felt like intimidated, but excited. And I know what you're saying about her view of humanity and her her style. And the, the, the characters are both, they're cut from the fabric of her mind and her mind alone, but they're also like, very real and heartbreakingly real at times, you know, and so how does the music reflect that? You know, like, how do you honor that? You know, and that was, that was a fun challenge, you know? Yeah. And with these special parameters of the worlds that she creates, uh, um, the film language and the language between the characters, I mean, do you get kind of seduced into testing and stretching your own boundaries a little bit to kind of, to kind of meet that eccentricity? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely was seduced into that thing. I felt like, you know, she has this way, and I can't really think of any artist that pulls this off, of being, like, endlessly charming, but without being cute or twee or, or um, like, cutesy, you know? Because there's an edge to it and there's teeth to it, to her work at the same time, you know. So, like, you wanted to honor both of those things, you know, and I didn't want the music to feel, the parts that are charming, I didn't want them to feel to feel cute. And, I, and the parts that are darker, I didn't want them to feel, like, heavy-handed, you know. I think that it's finding that sweet spot. We found it together, too. Like, the, the, the musical choices were as much hers as they were mine, you know. I was writing them, but she was sitting right here behind me on this couch, you know, so it was like going fishing together, you know, yeah. That's great. Well, what I notice about all three of her films, is there's a little bit of this feel of comedic melancholy, not only in her stories, but in the, in the music she chooses. I always thought that John Bryan had a way with that, not only in his music for the future, but in films like Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind and Lady Bird. Mm-hmm. And I get I got some of that forlorn piano vibe from those works in in your work for Kajillionaire. Oh, cool! Particularly in in cues like after the quake, mm-hmm. which is right after the big earthquake that Richard Jenkins' character is worried about throughout the film. That 
piece of music I felt like was sort of the second half of the love theme that felt sort of classic but off. I took from Nina Rota or these old Italian scores and like specifically there's a scene in the Dolce Vita when he's chasing this woman in a, in a fountain that has a cue that has a similar feeling to it. I felt like there was something that was a little bit dreamlike and and off about it, but also very romantic and sort of felt like the music, the piece of music itself sort of felt drunk, you know. on life and is drunk with this sort of optimism that we haven't seen yet, you know, from her character. But yeah, I mean, John Bryan and Eternal Sunshine, like, that's one of my favorite scores of all time. It doesn't get any better than that. And as far as music that transcends, too, like, it doesn't feel like film music or band music. It's just, uh, it's incredibly emotive and he's, you know, he's such a giant and he sort of created that sound or brought it into the modern realm, you know? You mentioned a, a dreamlike quality and I got that as there's sort of like an outer space uh, feel to it, like old Star Trek love scene score music. Um, oh, that's cool. With like these astro yeah. astral vocals that behave like instruments and you get this oh, yeah. theremin-esque quality. Well, yeah, there, there, there's a vocalist that named Theodosia Rousseau and she's, she's brilliant. She, um, she actually plays oboe and English horn on Last Black Man in San Francisco. She's, she's a huge part of that score. And it was fun working with her on this film right after that with a completely different instrument of, you know, using her voice as a featured instrument on this score, it was cool to sort of compartmentalize and like she didn't play a note on the oboe on this score. We tried some stuff, but we found that her voice was like a really cool texture and, and, and character really in the score. I mean, it's such a feminine film in a way. And also there's something very alien about her voice that she can sort of bring it to places that are that sound like a theremin or sound like a saw or sound like uh, otherworldly, like not of this world. She's up in the stratosphere. And... Her vocal uh, prowess before? I knew about it. You know, we'd, we'd made music together and she'd sung and I'd heard her voice, but I hadn't recorded her singing any of my melodies, you know. And you don't know what's going to work for a specific film, you know. You you know, you know try it out and then you, you say, oh wow, this is cool. And she's all over this score. Sometimes she's featured in a way that you really notice and sometimes you just feel it. It was also fun because it wasn't, because we'd worked together in one way and then did something completely different for this one. Well, she's your secret weapon, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, she shouldn't be a secret, but... No, but yeah. I don't think she's going to be. She's no, not. I don't think so either. I don't think so either. You got to explore more rhythmic music in this film. Mm -hmm. I, heard that, I heard that as well in some of the cues for Homecoming Season 2, and that's when I started to pick up on some of those more percussive rhythmic pieces. You know, you were able to direct pacing in that way uh, for Homecoming. And here, on cues like uh, Rile Me Up and Bubbles Beat, you really get into, you know, you, you in effect create beats. Yeah. Yeah, that was a real treat to do. I felt like I really got to do it the most with Miranda 
with Last Black Man, I'd, I, you know, the, the saxophone was kind of like used as a percussive instrument, you know. And with Homecoming, yeah, there was so much sort of propulsive, like, you know, Janelle Monet running around in the woods and um, things that you want to give a heartbeat to that, you know. But with Kajillionaire, all the percussive music or most of the percussive music is for that family doing their thing. Except for Round Me Up, that was its own thing. That's its sort of own sexy side of the love thing. That one feels the least like film music to me, or whatever that means. My first instinct when I heard Rile Me Up, and I loved it when she said that, what are you trying to rile me up? I thought that was a great, great line. But as a kid growing up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan during the golden era of hip hop, the first thing I wanted to do was start freestyling to oh, that wow. when I heard we gotta, it. We gotta make that happen, man. Oh yeah? Here, you got a microphone, <laughs> I can see right there. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, it was like, it the was- The remix. Yeah, the remix. It's like one of our favorite composers, Nicholas Patel, uh, mm -hmm. getting together. Who was it? Who was it with again? Do you remember? With with Push. Oh, Pusha Push T. T. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that that was that blew my mind. You know, if anybody had a question about whether or not TV music could be cool, you know, he put that one to bed. Yep, put that one to bed. All right. Yeah, I mean, who's better than that? And like, he's Nick is so you know such a hip-hop guy that you know he's a big he, hip-hop head that guy yeah completely yeah. i'm not i can't i can't he's got a depth of knowledge that you know i don't know i can't compete with or you know but he he did i mean that's the top of the mountain right pushing t that's it's pretty amazing to hear that i think yeah i think we i think you need to get somebody on round me up man oh yeah maybe maybe down yeah. the line who knows yeah, who knows? Maybe, maybe you. We'll see maybe what me. you got. Yeah. All right, maybe I'm a, I'm up for it. Let's do it. Well, as long as you get riled up while you're doing oh, it. Oh, definitely. That's what I was saying. It was riling me up. It was getting yeah, me. Yeah, get, nice. It was, it was getting I'm me glad. going. I'm glad you get riled up. That's the idea. I really love that 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 cue. It's really oh, thanks, fantastic. Man. Yeah. wondering about how source music instructs or informs the original score music and uh, have there been times when you're very aware of a song like for instance Mr. Lonely in your writing process? You know yeah Mr. Lonely in this movie serves as score in a way it's like it's kind of the theme of the movie in a way I mean we have our love theme and we have our heist theme and we have some other recurring things but Mr. Lonely is very much one of them I think it informed it in a way you know the way that Joni Mitchell and um, Michael Nyman sort of informed certain things about Last Black Man you know this when you have something that's like that's so classic right you know then you want to make sure what you're writing also feels classic you know you kind of got to like try to put on your your best suit and stand up next to that stuff, you know, so that it doesn't feel like you're in, a two, in two different movies. Right. Well, it was interesting to me, too. It went so far that a cover of Mr. Lonely was performed by none other than Angel Olsen, who our listeners and readers of Under the Radar, I think, would be very interested to know about as far as your experience working with her. Is that the first time you had worked with a recording artist like that, uh, particularly on a film score? Yeah, definitely. You know, it's, I'm such a fan of hers. I have been for, for a very long time and 
Miranda as well. Um, that was a really fun thing to, to build. At Sundance, Miranda and I were talking about making this, this soundtrack album together and what could be a fun, exciting thing, what, what could be something that feels connected to the film but expanded, expanded on. And we had the idea of having a woman sing Mr. Lonely. And we made a list of our sort of dream singers and Angel was at the top of it. And we reached out to her, we got very lucky. She was in LA um, right when we were needing to, to finish the record. And she came here to the studio and the three of us recorded it in a couple days. And uh, a few hours each day, just kind of knocked it out. And it was, yeah, it was a dream, man. Just like working with those two legends. the dynamic between you two uh ha i mean was it just an easy flow pretty much right away i mean she has that she has that voice that kind of calls back that that era that we're that we're talking about like almost automatically it's almost freaky yeah no it's, it's a trippy thing to like listen to somebody's records and then they're next to you and they're and they're that sound is coming out of them in real time you know that was that was incredible. Now, that was a really special day. Miranda and I met up here and then Angel came to join us and then we recorded her and uh, I was sort of following her lead on the timing. You know, it was totally free. There wasn't a track for her to play to. It was, the track was built around her performance. She was uninhibited and it was cool to actually also see Miranda in that moment, sort of, I never got to see her direct in a way she was kind of another producer on the track and in a huge way she was producing the track with me and that she was sort of, not musically, but emotionally sort of bringing out certain things in Angel's performance, like trying to draw the line between Angel and Old Olio and the sort of vulnerability in her voice. And Oh, interesting, yeah. Yeah, and um, well, she's you, really to feel that she was lonely when she's saying I'm lonely, you know, you know, there is a, you know, the, the, there's an arc to the track that I don't think any other singer could have done and where it's that vulnerable, where she's barely even producing sound and then it's, then it's haunting and then it's kind of soaring in this way and then goes back and ends in this place that's more vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all of the, all of the characters in this film uh, they're all amazing performances in their own way. But I, like I said, Evans really stood out to me. I mean, it was incredible. She doesn't smile in the entire film except for in one place. And I think what comes across is, is like you said, this she's been neglected. She doesn't know what traditional love is. She doesn't know what it is to be accepted and loved openly by her parents. They're, they're just, they don't have that kind of relationship. But... There's one scene when the entire tone of the, of the film changes. Uh, it's a brief sequence when they go into the home of a man that's dying because they're trying to, to con him. And, and so they're in the middle of one of their wacky schemes. But then suddenly it gets revealed that this man whose house they're in is about to die. He's in bed in his own room and then he asks them to make sounds like natural house sounds like clinking of silverware and people chatting and even maybe if a piano can be playing and and suddenly uh gina gina's character melanie gets on on the piano and performs this really strikingly beautiful piece and it goes from this kind of kookiness into this really touching scene where they all seem like an actual loving family together very briefly 
I felt the light change a little bit. The light kind of came in to the house and it became a little warmer. And all of a sudden, you know, Richard Jenkins is watching golf on television and laughing about it. And Deborah Winger is serving imaginary plates of cake to everybody. And it just, it felt like this great day of where a family's together. And that's the one moment where Evan's face kind of brightens up from the scowl that she holds across the, the whole film. I was a bit embarrassed when I was like, oh, I love that piece, man. That's a, that's a great piano piece. And you said, well, that's actually, that's the only one that's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's an incredible piece of music. Um, that piece was in there when I started working on the film and it was so beautiful. I didn't, like, it was never, like Miranda told me right out of the gate, like that piece is staying and Mr. Lonely is staying. Other than that, it's open. It was a relief because I don't know how I'm going to beat that piece of music. Uh, I mean, impossible. It's so perfect. It's like there's something optimistic about it, but also heartbreaking about it. And it's not, it sort of lives in this, it hits its own note and lives in this own frequency that, that, that can occupy both worlds and is heartbreaking in that way. Um, and it's also, yeah, it's really powerful. It brought tears to my eyes during that scene. Well, you gotta, you gotta get Summer on here and interview her about it. She's um, an amazing composer. But yeah, no, it was really powerful. That's 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 her piece. Yeah, Summer Mastis. So she wrote it. Uh, she's an old friend and collaborator of Miranda's. I imagine that Gina had to learn it or pretend to play it, or but yeah, but that's Summer's piece, and um, which is yeah, it's another cool thing to like have a great piece of music in a film like that and then um, another thing to try to live up to, you know? You don't want anything that you do to fall short of that or to feel like it doesn't, it doesn't belong as a companion to that, you know? One thing that really caught my ear, one of my favorite elements of this score, and really speaks to your creativity in my mind, um, the flute articulation. Uh, the pattern is really hypnotic. It was really hypnotic to me. It, it almost reminds me of a needle at the end of a record. Passing over the same groove and some of those dust specks, the way the flutes kind of repeat and and create this kind of pattern this identical repetition yeah yeah it's more sample based than it's more it's closer to hip-hop than it is to classical music you know and how did you arrive at that in particular how did you get that sound it just worked so well it was it's it's, it's a really exciting part of of the score i think oh cool yeah it's just it's a sample that was built from pre-recorded flutes and then layered with with a, a flautist. I never know how to say it without sounding like an asshole. <laughs> flutist? Flau I think it's flutist, I think. I've heard both. You've yeah. heard them, yeah. Okay, so I've been a flutist. Uh, she's an amazing flutist, Gina Luciani. She doubled this sample that I made and I just kind of, I stacked it and, and uh, copied and pasted it really to make it sound that way. So it was a sample that I built and then copied and pasted. Do you get that feeling that I'm describing, the kind of like end of a record where it just seems like it's passing over the same part over and over again? Yeah, that's the idea. It's awesome to hear that it's coming across, you know? But yeah, that's the idea. That it doesn't sound like a performance, that it sounds like a loop. Like a loop. And I guess that's why yeah. it worked so well in Rile Me Up, because it has Rile Me Up as that kind of hip hop beat. And then yeah. you have this loop of that, that beautiful flute it just brings it all together. You're getting all riled up. I'm, yeah, I'm about to, I'm going to go write my verse. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I would say that even before the pandemic hit, there was kind of, you know, a pervasive and important topic of discussion in the industry and the media surrounding the industry was the future of movie production with regards to the small to mid-budget film. This still is very much a, a quirky indie comedy that you would have seen that were being made more, I would say back in, in the nineties. And that sort of 
territory seems to be getting more and more marginalized and disappearing more. I hear it all the time from filmmakers about movies um, that made a huge impact on popular culture in my life that uh, that would never get made today. You know, uh, you mm -hmm. hear it from filmmakers over and over again saying, oh, that, that film would never get made today. Like, yeah. for instance, a movie like Ghost World might not get made today. Yeah. Uh, or Napoleon Dynamite, for instance, might not get made today. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at is, what are your thoughts about that, since those are the kinds of films that you've worked on thus far? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, it, it does resonate with me, what you're saying. This film feels very new and very, to me, like like nothing I've seen, but also sort of a relic from another time at the same time. You know, it feels it feels like like it's cut from that same fabric of some of those films we grew up watching, but it feels completely reimagined and new in a way and modern in a way. That's sort of kind of going back to that thing we keep coming back to of the modern and, and the classic, you know, dipping in and out of each other seamlessly. So that's what she's that's what she does and um that's what I try to do. Try to hang hang in there with her. I guess that's my long-winded way of saying I'm glad there are directors and artists like her that are getting the opportunities to to make movies like this still and and a director like Joe Talbot even though it took him 10 years to make the film it got out there and there were people that believed in it and um yeah, it's funny you say that because he's because Ghost World is like one of his favorite movies. Is that right? Yeah, there's actually there's a reference to it. Yeah, I don't know if you know. Remember the scene with Thor Birch on the bus at the end when? Yeah. When Jimmy tells her, you, "You don't get to hate it unless you love it." About San Francisco, that's supposed to be the continuation of those two characters of Thor. That's so funny. And the blonde girl is supposed to be like ScarJo, right? You know now, right? Right, so, and they're still bitter and still critical. They're still bitter and they're still in San Francisco. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it was like a nod to that. I didn't even put that together. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought up Ghost World and Joe. I mean, you handed it. You know, you put you did kind of put it together inadvertently. <laughs> that's right. No, I guess I, I guess I guess On I must some have subconscious been level. Subconsciously, yeah. yeah. No, but it's just I think it's really exciting. There's a place for those people doing that kind of work and that and it must be exciting for you to be able to lend your art and your hand to films like that oh it's the best it's the best keep it alive yeah i'm just gonna say this because i heard other people say it and it made sense to me i don't know if it's true but i feel like this will lend itself to more of that you know sort of even the playing field in a way and be good for independent film it makes sense you know that that like if the big blockbusters are are dying in a way, then they'll make space for for other films. I know that in a lot of ways it'll it'll make it more challenging, but I think I don't know distribution and all that is a different animal now. But I don't I can't I can't speak to that really. Right. Just, uh, playing the piano, stick to playing the piano, <laughs> which you're very good at. Ah, oh, thanks. I wasn't I wasn't fishing. Fishing, no fishing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about embarking on a piece of music or a project in the beginning, in the beginning stages. I was thinking about the analogy to writing when I've done writing about film music. I'm always terrified in the beginning because I have to find words that serve a coherent purpose and I, I'll start jotting some down. But, you know, I think I relax a little bit knowing that I'm not committed to those words. I, I can move them around or rearrange them and replace them if I need to. Um, does it help to think about that and kind of alleviate some of your stress when starting out with something? And you know, if you're writing sketches, you don't necessarily have to say, well, this is going to be it and I have, to, I have to nail this right now. You can switch it around. You might even find a different place in the film where it wasn't intended. So do you, do you confront those kinds of feelings of concern and stress and worry when you start out on something uh, honestly the the starting out is the most fun part for me oh yeah when you when you're exploring and you're writing music and you're just at the piano every day writing music not worrying about revisions not worrying about approvals just kind of generating music 
and knowing that some of it's going to find a home. Yeah. And just like there's a sheer joy in that. And then the end of the experience is really, really rewarding in the sense where you record the orchestra or you go to the theater and see the, the movie and celebrate it in whatever way. It's the stuff in the middle when you're like chasing deadlines and prepping the music for the orchestra. It's that stuff in the middle that feels anxiety-inducing when you're like, okay, what do we have to do to get over the finish line? Like that stuff. But actually writing and like getting calibrated with another artist like Miranda or Joe, that's just the best thing in the world, you know? It's the best part. It's like another weird version of playing in a band. It's the collaboration, you know? So you just go right to it in the beginning. You just kind of let let the ideas fly, it sounds like. Yeah, I don't usually even pick specific scenes. I just write a bunch of melodies and and then play them for a director and see what they what they like and hope that they like enough of them. Right. You know. Yeah. What did Miranda say to you just out of curiosity if you could share that at the end of it? What were her impressions? Did she say anything specifically or oh, was this more about just... the score about the score? Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, she was super uh she said, you did so good. I remember she said that, which meant us a lot, you know. But no, she said a lot of sweet things. She was very generous. And yeah, no, it's always, you know, you can tell with any director when they, when something's really working for them, you know. And you find that out. She was in the room with you too. Yeah, she yeah. was in the room. Yeah. And then we were up at um, Skywalker mixing it, seeing on the big screen and giving notes. So like there's all these stages in the process where you, you know, you see it actually working in real time. Like Joe does a move where he'll slap your shoulder when you did good, and he's like, "I can't really do imitate it over audio," but <laughs> but I talked to like Jonathan Majors about it and Jimmy about it, and like they know that thing or D David the editor, Dave, you know, about when you actually get it right and like how rewarding it is. And with Miranda, it was like that amplified. That's the part I was talking about earlier when it's terrifying and exciting at the same time. Like, right. usually it's terrifying and you pre pressing the send button is terrifying. And anybody sure. can identify with that no matter what they do. That's right. It's sending the send button on an email with your attachment of a track to it or whatever. But this was like her on this couch and like, you know, so it was, it was more immediate. It was like amplified in that way you know well it's a really special film it's a special score they work really beautifully together i like i told you with last black man in san francisco it stays with you afterwards yeah that's that's a sign of a great filmmaker right yeah but i mean i also think it's for, for me i get so much out of the music that i think it's the combination, you know? Yeah, and yeah. It's all of it. It's the performances and the music and the, you know, the way it's shot. We, I see these movies from the inside out thousands of times, you know, and then with enough space, then I get to see them with some sort of freshness or perspective. But then it's also loaded up with other emotional associations, you know? It's like that feeling of like when the fall comes back around and... You live in New York or you live on the East Coast, when the air, the pitch of the air changes and it... It's getting that way now. It's get you're probably right in it. Yeah. Right, and that yeah. that is like so emotionally loaded up, right? So true. Because it reminds you of every other time in your life that, that 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 change happened. And it's kind of like, I always found that to be like really, really heavy. Yeah, you have that with films too, in a way. Because you live and breathe them and you're so engulfed by them and swallowed up by them because you're working crazy fucking hours like an insane person and only listening to the same music over and over and over and only watching the same images over and over and over so that when you actually take some time away and you see it, it's almost too much, you know? A bit overwhelming, the, the, full, the full delivery of it. Yeah, I don't want to sound like, a, like I just ate a bunch of Molly or something. But... <laughs> But it's true, you know, especially with this film and Last Black Man, you know. Well, I think fans of Miranda July will be very happy and thrilled and rewarded by this film. 
Yeah, I think so too. The impression that I get from my discussions, and this is a bit of a curveball, but the impression that I get from my discussions with composers is that they all seem to have this kind of innate empathy that comes across, and I get it from you. I've gotten it from many people that I've spoken with about their art, and that seems to be something that's very vital for a film composer, this kind of like ability to connect with human emotion, to, to empathize, to identify with it. You know, it makes sense because, you know, you need that in order to write music for a story and character, to bring the life and the emotion and all of those things out. I mean, do you see yourself as somebody who, you know, has that sensitivity and that kind of inherent empathy? I, yeah, I, I'd like to think so. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that that comes out in the in the work, or that's part of the job is that is like being able to do it. I, I, I don't know how to talk about it without sounding like an asshole. You know, um, I'm putting you on the spot. I, as far as no, no, it's good though. It's a good question. You know, I think that you you're lucky to have that kind of job where you're able to to color a story or to or to like provide a certain amount of emotion. Uh, emotional content to like push a story along um you know with kajillionaire i'd almost forgot it was a comedy because my job wasn't to score the comedy my job was to provide the empathy and to provide the 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 heartbreak and the melancholy and the romance and the comedy was in the other space and obviously i i smiled endlessly while watching the movie and 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 there were scenes that that were funny that had music in them too but I hadn't really fully realized that it was a comedy that was the genre until I saw it at Sundance and 2,000 people laughing, you know, their asses off. And I was like, oh, wow, this is a comedy. Like, I always knew it was funny and and I was always charmed by it. And there's a lot of performances, especially by Evan, throughout the film that will always make me laugh, you know? But... But yeah, it's the empathy is, uh, yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that's part of the composer's job is to have some sort of emotional intelligence, you know, and be able to write something that makes somebody feel a certain way, you know? The magic to me is that it, that kind of empathy comes across in a score in a magical, mysterious way that I don't think I'll ever be able to fully understand, uh, but it, it delights me to no end and you're one of the most capable in that way that i've heard ah oh, thanks man yeah no i uh it's great to hear that that a piece of music is connecting with a film and then with an audience you know yeah that's it's such a such a joy to to, to just be in the mix you know um well we've done we've done a deep dive here again emil you and i look at that this has been a a true joy uh, for me to get to talk to you about your work. Uh, it means a lot to me. It, like I said, not to go on and on about it, but having music accompany image in these ways that are mysterious, but I think speak to every everybody's situation on one level or another is something that has always moved me tremendously. And that's why... Yeah. Yeah, me too. That's why I'm here talking to you about it. You know, I'm so curious always about these things and the process and how you arrive at things and the mechanics and the instincts. And thank you for indulging me for... <laughs> thank you, man. It's such a treat to be able to talk about this. I mean, this score is really... Uh, and this film are really close to my heart. And um, it's been, you know, waiting a long time for it to come out. So it's really, really a treat to uh to be able to talk about it and especially with somebody that that you know really resonated with it's 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 pretty cool uh to be able to to chop it up with somebody like you and you know i look forward to whatever the future holds thanks man